Hey everyone, today's episode is a teaching I did on Hebrews 10 out at a program called Gospel-Centered Recovery at Sailorville Church in Des Moines, Iowa. Gospel-Centered Recovery exists for men and women who want to see victory over their various addictions or sin struggles through the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will have links down in the show notes to both the church and the program itself as well as a link to the video teaching if you would like to see this in action. All right, well, many of you actually came back knowing I was going to be here. That's awesome. Um, So I said last week I was really excited to be able to teach two weeks in a row because normally at GCR, you know, you get one chapter and you pour everything you have into that chapter, but you can't easily build on what came after and you don't get to follow up with what comes next. So it's really neat to actually be able to have spoken on uh, Hebrews 9 last week and how Jesus brings in that new covenant. And then, uh, you know, as, as the Bible does, you know, from chapter 9 to chapter 10 is really just one flow of thought that the author has. And so getting to uh, follow up on that is uh, just really, really exciting uh, to be able to do this time. So if you're not here last week, that is okay. We will briefly recap, or well, actually the author will briefly recap what we talked about last week. Um, But I want to start a little bit dramatic, if I can, tonight, um, and start in uh, kind of the last part of Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 10, 26 to 27, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, you read that, and that's a little scary, right? If you were here last week, you may remember, I said, you can't lose your salvation. What is going on here, right? Because this very clearly seems to say that if you continue sinning, Jesus' sacrifice no longer covers you, but you can expect eternal judgment in the lake of fire. That is how a lot of people read this. That is how a lot of people understand this. And this is what a lot of people will base their theology and their understanding of salvation on, because it clearly seems to teach that. Um, But what we're going to do tonight is just go through basically all of Hebrews 10. I will make it as quick as I can, uh, but also help you understand it. And we are going to see if this is really saying that you can lose your salvation if you sin just a little too much. Spoiler alert, for those of you who check out, it does not say that. But I will, I will explain to you why that is the case. Amen. So this starts in Hebrews uh, 10 verses 1 to 18. Now, Since I'm not allowed to speak for two hours, I'm not going to go through all of this. Instead, what I've done is I've summarized it into four basic chunks. And what the author does here is he basically recaps a bit of what he said in Hebrews chapter 9 about the sacrifice of Jesus, the sufficiency of it. Now, in Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 4, what he basically talks about is how animal sacrifices never took away sin. We talked about that last week. Animal sacrifices covered sin, right? But that's covering like a bandage on a wound, like a blanket thrown over something. It never completely took away sins. Verse four here, he says that very clearly, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Doesn't get more straightforward than that. Then in five to 10, he talks about how Christ's sacrifice makes us righteous. Verse 10 summarizes that perfectly. By this will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. A one-time sacrifice for all those who will call on him for salvation. He then continues that thought on in verses 11 to 14, uh, saying that it was a one-time and perfect sacrifice. Verse 14 says it as, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
Uh, Now, these two statements are very important to take together. We have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, by one offering, he has perfected for all time all those who are being sanctified. Taken together, what he's saying is that those that are being sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ are being perfected for all time. This is already starting to make us question whether we can lose our salvation, I hope. Then he uh, ends this section, verses 15 to 18, that we don't and can't make offerings for sins he forgave. Now remember, these offerings are a callback to those animal sacrifices, right? If you intentionally sinned, if you lied, if you accidentally killed your neighbor's ox, you know, whatever it was, you would bring an animal to the high priest, he would make that blood offering on your behalf, and then that sin would be covered. But he says in verse 18 here as a reminder, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Now, Put a mental pin in verse 18 because we're going to return to that because that is going to be critical to our understanding of something that the writer is going to say soon. But that is Hebrews uh, 10, 1 to 18 in a very brief summary that essentially Jesus Christ paid the one-time sacrifice for all. If you place your trust in him, you are perfected in the sight of God. You are made righteous. You are justified. The guilt of your law-breaking against the law of God is completely removed from you forever. Now, he's going to go on. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this first before we get into the fun stuff. So uh, verses 19 to 25 are a, a conversation or a dialogue that he has that builds up to that verse that may have confused us, right? That verse that seems to say, if you sin too much, you lose your salvation and can only expect the lake of fire. So what we're going to do here is we're going to read something that has a lot of detail. And so what I've done is I've highlighted in red the parts that are basically his main points, the main things I want us to focus on. The stuff in white is not unimportant, but it is a lot of detail that he adds to prove his point. So he starts off saying, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, if you were here last week, you may notice a lot of references, right? A lot of callbacks to that old covenant, all that uh, tabernacle uh, stuff, you know, the temple, the sacrifices, the veil, the high priest, all that, you know, he's making a callback to that. But the thing to pay attention to here is notice the logical breakdown he's making. He says that since we have confidence, since we have a great priest, because these things are true, let us then do this. First, he says, let us draw near. Then he goes on in this passage saying, and let us hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see a day drawing near. So again, he continues with that. Since we have this, let us do this. Let us hold to our confession. Let us stimulate one another and not forsake the assembling together. So what he's doing here is he is laying out a logical argument that he is going to use to say the next thing he's going to say, the, the kind of pivot point of this whole chapter. So to simplify his statements here, what he says is because of what Jesus did, right? What we learned about Jesus in chapter nine, really in all of Hebrews, but that that layout he made in chapter nine about how Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect high priest who takes away our sins. 
because Jesus has paid the penalty, let us do this. And he makes three let us statements because of who Jesus is. First, he says, let us draw near to God. Now, this is a statement about living out our relationship to God, our reliance on him, our trust in him, our accurate understanding of who God is, everything wrapped up in our, our good um, Christ-centered relationship to our Heavenly Father is something that we should do, something we should take advantage of and take part of because of what Jesus Christ did. Also because of what Jesus did, let us hold fast to our confession. That is talking about living out biblical faith. That is saying because of what Jesus did, rely on this truth. Live your life after what you know is true. Don't live like the rest of the world. Don't live according to your emotions. Live out the confession of your faith the things that you know are true based on the word of God. And then finally, because of what Jesus did, let us build up one another and not forsake the assembling together. Uh, This is just talking about living out biblical relationships with others within the church. Now, this is an important thing because it has two aspects of it that we are often going to fail one of if we're not careful. It says that we need to build up one another, to to, um, strengthen one another, to encourage one another. That means... Christians, that when you go to church, it's not enough to get there one minute early and then bolt out the doors as soon as the prayer is done. You are called to live in community with other believers. I mean, you think about the, you know, like the small group time here where there's honesty, where there's openness, where there's love for one another. There is a willingness to help those in need and bear their burdens. And there's also a willingness to let them serve us when we are hurting, when we are needing encouragement and uplifting. That is what God calls us to in Christian community. But it's not just at GCR. It's not just having a a really good friend group of people who also love Jesus. This is meant to be done also in the local church. It says, don't forsake the assembling together. This this language is all about the a, a group of Christians gathering together weekly for the preaching and teaching, for, you know, if you look in Acts, the breaking of bread and things like that. It's not just enough to love your friends and and have really close Christian friends. It's also not enough just to go to church. We need both of these. Now, what the author is laying out here though is essentially this is the blueprint for holy living. You need to have a relationship with God. You need to have a relationship with others in the local church and you need to live your life according to your faith. Not according to your wills, not according to your desires or the world, but according to what God has called you to live out. Now, what the author doesn't say, but what is obviously implied here is if this is holy living, what is it if we refuse to do this? What is it if we refuse to do something here? It's living sinfully, right? If we don't do any of these things, we are not living the life that God has called us to. Now, with that understanding, knowing that this is either holy living or it shows us where we are not living holy lives, then he says, for... If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, you remember earlier I said, put a pin in verse 18, right? Now, remember, verse 18 says, now where there is forgiveness of sin, there no longer remains any offering for sin. That is exactly what the author is calling back to when he says that if we go on sinning, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. He is not talking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What he is saying is that if you continue sinning, you can't just go and buy an animal and give it to the high priest. That's done. That is done away with. 
Christ has done it all as your perfect high priest. He has made the one-time sacrifice. You have no fear of needing to make things right with God before you die or before you forget about it and just have that sin hanging on you. Jesus has paid it all. There is no more sacrifice for sin that you have to make or that you have to worry about. Jesus did it all. But there is an expectation of judgment. Now, just as we can read that word sacrifice and, and misapply it and think, oh, that's clearly talking about Jesus when it's not. When we see the word judgment here, we can easily assume, oh, that's talking about that final judgment for sin. When those who have not had their sins paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ will stand before him as judge and they will be sentenced to the lake of fire for their law breaking. That's not the judgment he's talking about here. Judgment in its very simplest sense is to say, based on what I have evaluated, what will I now do? We see the word judgment used throughout the Bible many times, and it's not always just this final judgment that we should expect. So to understand what he's talking about, he, we, he's already covered what this sacrifice means, right? He's, he dealt with that before verse 26. Well, now what this judgment is, is he's now going to explain that to us. Um, in verse, starting in 28, he starts off by saying, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now, that seems so random when you first read it, right? Because he's talking about, you know, you need to, you know, if you keep sinning, you know, there is a judgment that's coming and anyone who sets aside the law of Moses is going to die. We're not under the law of Moses. What on earth is this author talking about? Well, what Bible writers like to do that can be very frustrating sometimes is they will make a very brief snippet of a reference to something, trusting that his audience is going to understand the much bigger expanded context later on. Now, we are not people who have been raised in the Jewish faith and have studied the Old Testament you know, day in and day out and made it a part of our lives. So this may probably be lost on some of us. But what he is referencing here is all the way back in Deuteronomy 17, 7 to 8. It says, On the mouth of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the mouth of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall first be, be first against him, to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is what the author is calling back to. He is reminding them that under the law of Moses, if you broke the law that God had given to Moses, if you had, had you know, sinned in the, in the ways that deserve death, it wasn't enough for one person to see you. Two or three people had to actually see you breaking the law. The reason for that is people are people, and if you don't like someone, you can say, hey, I saw him you know, blaspheming the name of God over there. So, so, you know, God's a little smart and doesn't just let people get away with that. But he says that if someone is so blatantly sinning that two or three people are able to see them doing it, then they deserve death because they are in such rebellion that they are willing to sin that openly in front of the people. Now, the purpose here is stated in this very last sentence. Why put these people to death for breaking the law? To purge the evil from their midst. God is not afraid to remove people for the sake of the many. He is not afraid to take away those whom he loves, who are still his children, if they are basically standing in direct rebellion against his plan. If they are refusing to obey their God, God will deal with them sometimes lightly, sometimes in the harshest way possible. But this shows us that God is not afraid to deal death to those who refuse to walk in obedience. And that is what the author is calling back to. So understanding that, Let's continue on here. 
So anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Now, this is something that, as I said last week, a lot of biblical writers like to employ. It's called arguing from the lesser to the greater. If this smaller, weaker thing is true, how much more true is this bigger thing going to be? So what he says here is, if, the, if those who, who set aside and disobeyed the law of Moses, you know, that thing that is not perfect, that was never meant to save, if people who, di- who set that aside would be killed, how much worse is it going to be for those who God himself witnesses, not just breaking the law of Moses, but doing what? Trampling underfoot the Son of God, right? Just, just stomping muddy shoes all over Jesus like, like some kind of dirty throwaway rug. Um, how much worse will it be for someone who, who sees the blood that he shed that sanctifies us, that takes away our sin, and just sees it as defiled, as pointless, as meaningless to their lives? And how much worse will it be someone who insults the Holy Spirit in their lives, who feels the Holy Spirit drawing them to holiness, convicting them of sin, and says, no, go away. This is what I need. I know you're God, but I know more than you. How much worse is it going to be for that person who lives their life day in and day out, rejecting the reality of Jesus Christ in their life. Now, we may read that and think, well, yeah, that's probably talking about, you know, people who just see, you know, the the reality of God and they understand that God is real and they still refuse him. No, what this is talking to is people who understand that God created us for himself, but that through sin, through breaking his law, we have broken that relationship. We have made ourselves an enemy of God and that no amount of good that we do is going to restore that. We can do nothing to make up for it. It is only the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice he paid, him taking our sins on himself and telling God, treat me as guilty, punish their sin on me instead of them. It is only by trusting in that sacrifice alone that saves us, truly placing your trust in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, asking him to save you. And from there, remember that we are not called to just have our get out of hell free card. We are called to live according to the faith right? To live the lives that God has for us. Those are the people that the author is talking to here. Those people who have understood salvation, who have been given the Holy Spirit to dwell in them, to make them more like Jesus every day, to, to help them understand sin, to help them understand holy living. These are the people who the author is accusing of just disrespecting, neglecting, and even hating Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within them. That is the people he's talking to when he says that if you keep on sinning, not that you're going to lose your salvation, but that there is a judgment, there is a discipline coming for you. And we see him go on to say, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God or of the living God. God is not a teddy bear. That is what this basically says to us that if you are going to keep on sinning, you're going to fall into the hands of God. Not a dead God who just made some laws a long time ago and walked away, but a living and active God who loves you, who wants only the best for you. Not in, you know, worldly terms of, you know, wealth and power and health and things like that. He wants the best for you because the best for you is to live a life dedicated to him because he knows that that is why we were created. He knows that is why you were saved and he knows that that is why you spend every moment of your life breathing is to bring glory to God as you serve him. God is perfect and God is holy and he will execute perfect and holy discipline and judgment on his people who refuse to live the way that God calls them to. So 
where do we see this? Do we actually see this reality that God will deal harshly with those who are saved by the blood of Christ but still need discipline? We do. Uh, I'm going to step on some toes. Whoever is speaking in two weeks, Hebrews 12, 7, uh, we see this very uh, basically laid out. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? A loving father disciplines their child. Not out of anger, right? A good parent does not discipline out of anger. A good parent does not inflict their wrath on their child because they want to hurt that child. Why do they do it? Whether it's timeouts or whatever mode of discipline there is, a good loving parent does it to correct because they love that child so much. They don't want to see them walking in that dangerous path. They don't want them to keep you know, bringing on suffering for themselves, even though they think it's going to make them happy, right? A, a child who, who sneaks you know, a whole jar of cookies in the middle of the night, like a loving parent's not going to be like, oh, that rascal. No, because you know all the problems that that can create, both in eating a whole jar of cookies and also the behavior, the heart behind, that, behind what they've done, right? So a loving parent is going to deal with that. And so what I want us to pause here and just realize is that as we're talking about the, the scary reality that some of you may be under God's discipline and judgment right now, despite being saved by the blood of Christ, take hope and comfort in the fact that that proves that you are saved. God does not discipline those that hate him and he hates. God disciplines those he loves. If he loves you, he is going to pull you out of your sin, whatever way that he knows needs to be done. Now, let's look at what this discipline can look like. Uh, so the context here is that people had been um, going to church and taking the Lord's Supper, basically acting like, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to remember this, this, uh, the, the body of Jesus that was uh, killed and the blood that he shed. But I'm going to do that with completely unrepentant sin. They were going and maybe they went there and they had not forgiven someone. Maybe they went there and they were, uh, you know, having an adulterous affair with somebody or, or whatever things that they were doing. They were taking part. They were, they were acting like they were living the life of a, a person who was in love with God and had, had uh, confessed their sins, but hadn't. And so because they were refusing to live holy lives, Paul tells them, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now, the word sleep in the New Testament is the super secret code word for dead Christians. So he says people are weak or sick, and some of them have even died in this church because they were walking in unrepentant sin. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Again, I said judgment isn't always uh, the lake of fire. But when we are judged, when we are disciplined by God, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Here we see... God is not messing around with this church. There were some people he was disciplining them through making them weak, through making them sick. Some people, he killed them. Not because they were not saved, not because they lost their salvation, but because they were saved, he disciplined them so harshly. Now, that may not jive with our idea of a good and loving and teddy bear fluffy God who just wants good things for us like a grandfather. But we see this laid out even more clearly in 1 John 5.16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, he shall ask, and God will give it, <laughs> and God will give, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. The wording there. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. I want to I pause. Death is not always a sign of discipline. 
suffering in your life is not always a sign of discipline. I know Christians, when they understand this, their very first thing is, oh, any negative thing in my life is clearly God's anger at me. What sin am I committing that I'm not seeing? And they will just just wrench themselves with anxiety because they think that any bad thing is God's judgment and punishment on them. I don't have a clear way of saying, here's how you know, here's how you don't. The basics of it though, is that if you are being disciplined and the Holy Spirit is pointing out to you that you're being disciplined, you're probably being disciplined. If not, look for other things first. But here's what we see though. Sin leads to discipline. Sin leads to sickness. Sin leads to weakness. Sin can lead to death by a good, loving, and holy God. Now, for those of you who are still like, I cannot believe God would kill a Christian. Like, why would he remove them from this life? Let me try to give an analogy. And remember, no analogy is perfect. No analogy can perfectly teach the, the reality of a perfect and holy God. But let me just try to, to get us thinking in a better direction. So imagine that you have a child. They're 12 years old, and you are asked to teach their sports team. Pick your sport. Now, as you're, you're coaching this team, you realize your child is a bully. They are hurting other kids. They are being mean. They are being dominating. They are being you know, unnecessarily cruel to their opponents. Uh, they willingly and, and clearly cheat and don't care if they get caught. They disrespect you. They ignore the things you say. They mock you. They belittle you. They spit on you if you try to talk to them in the middle of a game. Your child is, is refusing to do anything that they are called to do, right? Now, as a good parent, as a good coach, you love this child. You're going to set them aside. You're going to talk to them about it. Maybe, if necessary, you're going to uh, you know, set them on the sidelines, maybe have them sit out a few games, maybe have them not attend practices, you know, whatever. You're going to take necessary steps to try to correct this behavior. What are you going to do if they still refuse? What are you going to do if they still stand in outright rebellion against their coach and the parent that loves them? If you're a good parent, if you're a good coach, you're going to remove them from the team, right? Because they are refusing to, to honor you. They are refusing to be of a benefit to the team, right? They are standing in the direct opposition of what you're trying to accomplish. Now, you may say, okay, well, a sports team versus death, like, those are worlds apart. But consider it from God's perspective. How different is it? From God's perspective, when you die, what happens? It may be unpleasant for you at the moment. It will hurt those that you leave behind. But in the span of eternity, what is 80 years in this life versus literally billions of years of eternity spent with Jesus Christ? It's a blip, right? It it will be unpleasant at the moment, but God in his goodness and in his love may know that for you, maybe you're refusing to listen to the other corrections. Maybe you're refusing to to learn from when he puts you on the sidelines. Maybe the best thing for a Christian is for God to remove them because the best thing for that Christian is for them to no longer be in a place where they can choose to sin. So what do we do about it? If, if you're here tonight and you're like, you know, there's, there's something in my life I'm refusing to repent of. There's something that I am clinging on to because I think it's going to bring me happiness and satisfaction. We're at GCR. Many of you may have an addiction that you are actively or maybe in a few days are going to return to. You know, what do we do? What do we do with these sins that we recognize in our life that at the moment they feel like they're going to set us free? They feel like they're going to bring us the ultimate happiness and that this is what we need the most. Well, the author of Hebrews tells his audience what to do when they realize the reality of this. If they realize that they have this ongoing unrepentant sin, if they are so enamored by the the lies that sin tells them, he gives them a way to overcome that. He tells them, remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. 
This is hope. Because what does he tell them? Don't look at right now. Don't look at what your emotions tell you. Don't look at what your body chemistry is telling you. Look to the past. Not at the maybe promise of satisfaction that sin offers now. Look at the rock-solid guarantees that God has given you in the past. Think about your life before Jesus. What did those sins do for you then? Think about what you felt, what you understood when you came to Jesus Christ and you understood the reality of your sins. Think about what Jesus has shown you about himself since then. All the times that you, he, he, he comforted you in your weakness, when he allowed you to say no to that sin, when you knew that he was the best, that he was your rock of truth. He says, think back to those times when you lived life walking in holiness and what that meant to you, what you knew without a doubt about God about your savior in those moments. Look back to those moments of truth, not this moment of temptation now where your emotions, your chemistry, everything around you is lying to you. Think back to what you have learned previously. Now he goes on here and he talks to this particular group about the the things that they can look back on. Uh, But then in verse 35, he picks it up and says, therefore, right? Therefore, meaning what, what I just said, right? Thinking back to the form of things. Do not throw away that confidence of yours, that confidence that you've learned based on your history with God, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And he goes on to remind us of what this promise is. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come. Jesus, Jesus is coming back, Right? And he will not delay, but my righteous one, right? The one who is willing to live according to holiness shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now remember, faith is not emotion. It's not this hope against, you know, all reason. Faith is based in rationality. Faith is saying, because of what I know, because of what I understand, because of what I see, here is what I will do, trusting in the thing I have faith in. So he's saying, because of what you know about God, because of what you have witnessed and experienced throughout your own life, in your own salvation, walk, live a holy life. But the one who shrinks back, the one who does not endure, my soul has no pleasure in him. Then he concludes with something that I hope we can say about ourselves, something that we need to honestly and genuinely reflect on and ask yourself, which of these statements is describing you tonight? Can you say, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul? You may be here tonight and you came in, maybe you knew full well that there is a sin you just absolutely refuse to let go of. Whether it's something you've been unrepentant of for a week or you spent a lifetime holding on to it, whether it's anger, whether it's resentment, whether it's bitterness, whether it's your addiction, whether it is your pride, whatever it is, what is that thing that the Holy Spirit inside of you, if you're a Christian, what is that thing that he is bringing to your mind right now? You are facing God's discipline for that. I guarantee it because God guarantees it. There's no sacrifice you can make. There's nothing you can do to make it better or to try to say, well, God, you know, I know I do this one bad thing, but what about all these good things? No, God says that if you are going to live in unrepentant sin, the only thing you can expect is God's loving discipline. It may be sorrow, it may be suffering, it may be God just giving you that thing you want. And God's saying, fine, you think this is going to make you happy? You think this is going to bring you satisfaction? Enjoy, see, see what your God does for you. But for some of you, if you are going to continue walking in unrepentant sin, you may be facing death. 
I don't say that to, to scare you and be one of those you know, fire and brimstone preachers. I'm, I'm just saying what God's word says. God does not mess around. His holiness is too important to him. It needs to be too important to us. We do not want to mess around and just live this life for ourselves. So that is Hebrews chapter 10. So what can we learn from this? Because I know, again, we look a lot at the context. So what are the practical takeaways that we can take from this? Number one, I copy-pasted this from last week, context matters. If we had just sat on that passage saying, you know, if you, if you keep sinning, there's no sacrifice, we could have gone in a totally different direction from what God truly teaches, and especially a different direction from what the blood of Jesus Christ has done for us. Context matters. We have to know why someone is saying what they're saying. Number two, we learn that sin brings discipline. Not judgment, not wrath, not anger, not God just you know, being so strong and he's just gonna smack you around. He is a loving father. He wants the absolute best for you and the absolute best for you is never sin. The absolute best for you is always walking in obedience to your God. Number three, discipline does not remove your salvation. It proves it. The only reason your father disciplines you is because he is your father. It's unpleasant. Don't look forward to it. But at the very least, rest in the reality that if God disciplines you out of love, it is because he loves you and he will love you absolutely forever. So you haven't failed to be a good Christian, right? You, you are just a, a human being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ who needs to just repent of that sin. Obey God and get back to doing what God has called you to do. Number four, remember what your past has taught you about God and sin. How many times has God proven himself to you in the past? How many times has sin proven itself to you in the past? Which one are you going to trust now? That's ultimately what you need to ask yourself. And then number five, endure even when you want to shrink back. God doesn't call us for momentary bursts of excitement and then a week of sin. He doesn't call us to be super holy on Sundays and then a wretched sinner the rest of the week. We need to endure no matter what our schedule looks like, no matter what events come our way, no matter how we feel, God calls for us to endure, to be steady, to be stable in our relationship with him, in our walking by faith, in our relationships with others, in going to church every week. God calls us for faithfulness in these things because this is the holy life that he has called you to. Each of us are going to have different things that that's going to look like, right? Not everyone's called to teaching. Not everyone's called to being a school teacher. We all have different ways that we live out holiness for God, but it's always going to look the same in those three things that he called us to in verses 19 to 25, right? Living with God, living with others, and living by faith. Now, if you are here and you say, yeah, I'm here, you know, I, I, I struggle with alcohol, I struggle with drugs, I struggle with porn, I struggle with anger, but, you know, I, I don't think I have Jesus, then this whole thing means absolutely nothing to you. My call for you is not to clean yourself up, to prove that you're good enough, to prove that you're a Christian. If you are here and you don't know with rock solid certainty that you have the blood of Jesus Christ paying for your sins, I honestly don't care how much you clean up your life today. If you die without Jesus Christ, you are going to face a judgment. It's not just a loving father's discipline. It is standing before God where he will open up his law and say, have your actions broken this law. He doesn't care how much good you've done because God's not a tax accountant. He is a judge. He's going to say, have you broken at least one law? And if you have lied, if you have disobeyed your parents, if you have lusted after someone, if you have ever gotten angry at that jerk in traffic, you've broken God's law. And you are facing eternity in the lake of fire as judgment for that. 
First, get right with God. Then worry about all the other stuff that through the Holy Spirit, he will guide you through. But if you are here and you have the blood of Jesus covering your sins, if your sin has been paid for, if as you stand before God, you are considered guiltless before him, live like it's true. Jesus Christ bought your victory on the cross. He did not die to make you a better person, to be your rah-rah coach. He died to set you free from the bondage of sin. So if you are under sin right now, it is not because you cannot help it. It is because you choose to be there. Jesus Christ died for so much more in your life than you just to keep living like you've always lived. What is the, the, the verse of, of GCR, Romans 12, 2? It's on my water bottle. I love this verse. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't think like the rest of the world. Be transformed. Who does the transforming? It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit in your life. Surrender to him. Do not mess around with your sin. God's not going to. Neither should you. You will face discipline for whatever you've brought here tonight that you know you are holding on to. Repent now before it's too late. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 